From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Really great to get your first adult case of pink eye. Boy, am I excited to have kids. Exactly. Really sounds good. The one to watch out for is hand, foot, and mouth disease. Oh, that sounds real gross. That's the worst. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Ezra Klein. Sarah Cliff is, is back with us. Back. In the we, studio. Yeah. With, I, can't, I can't walk right now. I had foot surgery, but, you but, know. But she cares so much yes. that she got here. I care so much about the ACA lawsuit, which we'll, we'll talk without about Without being able to walk. And about assessing ER bills. That's true. So, you know, always got to got to do some firsthand reporting on the healthcare system. <laughs> so we're going to we're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about our our hopes and dreams for the new year. Um, but first, we want to talk about the 2020 primary. When you ever you start talking about an election that's like eight million years in the future, a certain number of people get in with the like groaning and they're like, oh, do we really have to? And the answer is that, yes, we really do have to, uh, because many people who work in the political system, many of them current office holders, are doing things right now because of their ongoing efforts to get themselves elected president. Admittedly, yes, in the future, but like you're not going to be able to understand what happens in the Senate. You're not going to be able to understand other things that are going on in the party and in politics unless you understand that people are running. So, you know, early polls are worth – not that much, but it is something. Um, what well, we have, uh, Politico did a, a, an Iowa caucus poll recently. It has Joe Biden in first place at 30 percent, Bernie Sanders in second at 13 percent, Beto O'Rourke in third at 11, Amy Klobuchar in fourth at 9 percent, and then Elizabeth Warren below Klobuchar, and then uh, Harris and, and Booker down even further below there. But they're all bunched very tight. Yes. I mean, when you're talking about people who are below 9% of yeah. the polls, there's not huge gaps between them. I mean, But I think that's interesting. Is, I, I, I note that because I think it's interesting. In those, those numbers, like what's the... Well, so B- Biden is at 30, which is a big lead over Sanders at 13, right? So Biden, I guess, is a good place to start structuring this conversation. 30% is a very underwhelming number for, like, the former vice president. He's not dominating or anything. 
On the other hand, that is a big lead, right? And under the proportional delegate allegation rules, actually because everyone else is below 15, Biden would get all the delegates with his 30 percent. So that would be a pretty good result. And it's weird, right? And it's the same thing. So Sanders at 13, you know, similarly, like, He's ahead of everybody else, which is good. And in some ways, I think it would be a mistake to just discount the guys who are in first and second place for obvious reasons. But also, like, they are very well-known quantities. Uh, People are aware of who Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are, and neither of them, like, leap out to huge dominating early leads. Instead, there's middling levels of interest in like a billion other people. So let, let me make a couple quick points here. So one, the, the reason I do think this stuff is important to, to focus on is that who runs is really important in who wins and who runs is getting decided now. One of the important things that happened in 2016 is that even as Republicans ran this massive mega field, Democrats ran one of the smallest fields like in memory. They really only had, I think it was like two or three actual Democrats running for president. Um, Bernie Sanders was an independent socialist. There was um, uh, Chafee, who'd been a Republican. And then you had like O'Malley, you had Clinton, and then Jim Jim Webb had been a Democrat in the Senate for a couple of years, but before that had also been a Republican. I mean, that was a, a year where Joe Biden did not run, where Elizabeth Warren did not run, where Cory Booker did not run, where none of the governors ran. The decisions that got made by people looking at polls, because Hillary Clinton was polling in the 55 to 60 percent range. Um, she was dominant in, in early polls and where we've never seen anybody be on either side who was not a vice president. It cleared the field um, and she you know, locked up a lot of money and you know, there, there was a lot going on. But that clearing of the field was incredibly um, determinative in what ended up happening for the Democratic Party, for the country, for, you know, for all of this. So this stuff is important because some people are going to decide not to get in based on it. All this is going to be weighed pretty heavily. The other thing I want to note about it that I think is really interesting is that we used to talk about this period. Journalists did, political scientists did as the invisible primary. If you used to read ABC's The Note, which is one of the the early tip sheets that, that got kind of spread around online, they used to obsess about the invisible primary and they'd have like the Shrum primary about who was going to get Bob Shrum, the political consultant, on their side. But this was like a, a longstanding thing in, in political science, too, that a lot of these early moves of locking up support within the party, of getting the best consultants, of, of doing all that, it spoke to where kind of the elites in the party were going. And, and that could help you predict and understand what the dynamics of the primary are actually going to be. This primary at this point is visible in a way I cannot remember any of them being before. People are being a lot less coy about it. They're just saying pretty forthrightly, like, yeah, like I'm interested in running for president. A huge number of people are interested in running for president. I think our internal spreadsheet has something like 34 names on it on the Democratic side. A bunch of the candidates are bringing out huge policy proposals, like almost by the week, in order to show the way they will run for president. Elizabeth Warren's co-determination plan, uh, Cory Booker's wealth bonds plan. You have Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all. You have Kamala Harris's like mega EITC. And this is all happening. It's all happening very publicly. They're already going to the early primary states. So it's not just that, like, we're covering this early. It's that this is happening early. Like, something is going differently this year. For Dynamics, maybe, Matt, you wrote about the other day um, in your piece about why we're seeing such a big primary. And understanding why that's happening and kind of who it's going to end up benefiting, I think, like, this is actually the time you have to do it. And I think this all brings me back to something Matt was mentioning about why all of this matters, because I think you can really throw up your hands and say this election is a gazillion 
years away, 30 people throwing their hats in the ring is an absurd number of people to keep track of. And a lot of them, obviously only one of them will become the nominee. But I think the reason it matters to me and the reason I I would argue for people who like a show about policy that it matters is that it's really fueling a fierce policy debate in a way Democrats didn't really have in their last few primaries. You know, if you look back, because Hillary was such a clear front runner, you didn't really see this idea. You didn't really see candidates trying to carve out an ideological space among this really crowded field last year. You obviously didn't see that with the Barack Obama re-election campaign. You saw a bit of that in 2008, where you saw you know Edwards and Clinton and Obama putting out different policy platforms. So one of the things you see this year that you haven't really seen in those previous primaries is a lot of senators eyeing a run for office who are putting out really interesting and different policy proposals, partially to like stake out their policy positions, but also to say, you know, this is a thing that's a priority to me. You could see a lot of these Democratic candidates governing in roughly the same way, but I think one of the things that they might do a little differently is how they set their priorities. You know, you look back at the Obama administration and they decided, okay, we're going to go for health care and we're going to put that in front of some other things we might want to do. And I think one of the ways I read what's going on right now is Democrats kind of giving a sense of like what their ideas are, what their priorities are. And it really, like Ezra said, it feels like a weekly, if not daily deluge of different policy ideas. You know, just this morning, Senator Warren put out something I hadn't really seen floating around much before, which is this proposal for the federal government to manufacture generic drugs. The idea being some of these generics, you know, if you look at like Darprim and Martin Shkreli, that some of these generics have gotten really expensive and the government could step in and manufacture those at a much, much lower price. That was, you know, just this morning, you know, like you, Ezra, were listing a lot of these other proposals that have been coming out. I think this is something the Democratic Party hasn't really gone through in the past decade or so because the primaries have been quite different. And I think it's going to be, you know, I'm excited to cover it and watch it because I like writing about policy. And I think it's really going to be an interesting debate about where Democrats stand on certain ideas that they're going to flesh out because of this field that is very, very crowded with people who are currently serving as senators. But I I think this stuff can get a little bit misleading, though, because as you were saying, Sarah, right – The question I most would like to know about these different characters is like, what do they want to prioritize in policymaking? But that's not actually what they're talking about, right? So like, it's not clear to me. For one thing, like, Warren has put out so many big distinctive ideas that like, I don't even have a clear sense of her internal prioritization. But even other candidates who have more distinctive things, right? Like, Senator Harris put out her sort of EITC increasing program. Uh, She's also signed on to a Medicare for all bill, right? So in like political maneuvering contexts, like Bernie owns that Medicare for all brand. So like Harris's lift act is like her thing. But she's for both of them. And like what does that mean? Like what does it actually signify? And it can be very misleading. I inferred from the 2008 primary that 
Barack Obama was less interested in a health insurance overhaul than Hillary Clinton was. His insurance plan was much more slapdash than hers was. I think he at one point told me directly that he was more interested in the energy issue. I thought that was correct. I had like two major reasons why I voted for Barack Obama in that primary. One was that I agreed with him that Hillary Clinton had shown poor judgment on foreign policy. The other was that I thought he would deprioritize health care, which I thought was a <laughs> political loser and pointless compared to environment and energy. He then made Hillary Clinton secretary of state and prioritized health care. And so, well, you know, eggs on my face. But <laughs> <laughs> but like it's it's really hard to say. And and you know, I wish that you could like make the candidates answer these sort of dull real world questions about what they're going to do, but they just don't, right? So, you know, it's like if you ask Bernie Sanders like about your 11 unrealistic ideas, it's going to be like, well, the political revolution will make them all happen, right? Um, you try to get anybody else. It's just, it's it's inherently very murky. And I like, the more presidential election cycles I have covered, the less of a clear sense I have of like what the point of it is. Like it's important. It makes a big difference who's president. And obviously a lot of time and energy goes into these campaigns. But I'm looking at it already. I feel very uncertain about everything. And I also don't know what would make me feel more clear. And then I'm also just like puzzled. I mean, the to an extent, like the most shocking thing in this is that Beto O'Rourke, who has not really weighed in on the ideas primary, doesn't seem like in a normal sense like he's not conventionally qualified to be president on the strength of like some rumors that Barack Obama likes him and a couple of favorable mentions on crooked media podcasts has like leapt ahead of all these senators. And, you know, he seems like a nice, handsome young man. I think his Texas campaign is why he he leapt ahead in the polls. Right. People were really into that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, except the the voters who didn't. Didn't vote for him. But yeah, I mean, it was good. He, he gave good speeches in that campaign, which, which I enjoyed. But it was not a campaign that was like super sharp on nope. issues and mm-hmm. ideas, right? It was an airy kind of campaign that was – at the end, you know, he hammered in with some criticisms of Ted Cruz. But it was very much a like – hey, like Texas is this giant state with a lot of people in it. It hasn't had like a real campaign. It's been trending toward Democrats. Like let's feel good about ourselves and each other. It was it was like inspirational and I think the most, to me, most like mock-worthy ways that Obama 2008 was inspirational. I don't want to come across as like too harsh about this because he, he seems fine, but like – it's odd to me that after all this spade work was put in by all these other people that it's like, no, we really like the guy who had big crowds at his rallies, which maybe we do. That's politics. We'll see where people come down on it. I'm very interested to see if the Beto thing is just one of these bubble kind of issues where yeah, as people like get a lot of attention, they get, a, the, you know, they move up. I mean, that was a pattern we saw in the Republican primaries. It's a pattern we see in a lot of primaries that polling, particularly early on, moves with how central people are in media coverage. And at the end of the 2018 election, Beto was very central in media coverage. And so it's like people are getting called. They've given this no thought whatsoever. It's like they hear some names, the name, one of the names they hear, they're not a Biden person, they're not a Sanders person. They've like heard about this Beto guy, like, eh, Beto. So it's always hard to tell what is being conveyed in a poll. But I do want to offer one theory on this, which uh, I do think is plausible. So there tends to be 
a reality in any kind of election that people are always trying to refight the last election. They're always trying to answer what they think people did wrong just four years ago. And I think if you look at a lot of the senators in particular, the, you know, your Bookers, your Warrens, et cetera, they're running against Bernie Sanders. What they're functionally doing is staking out some kind of big left policy that in theory could appeal to his movement um, or, or towards some other big part of the uh, of the left, which is believed to be resurgent, um, but is not literally Medicare for all, right? They're maybe signed on to his bill, but it's like they're signed on to his bill and they have the EITC plan or they're signed on to his bill and they have, you know, the co-determination plan. Uh, but it's very possible that this, <laughs> this primary is not going to have those dynamics that in, you know, the 2016 primary was following eight years of Barack Obama. Um, Hillary Clinton had very unique weaknesses and, and frustrations that swirled around her as a candidate. And so it created this huge space for Bernie Sanders, who ran this incredible campaign. But the 2020 campaign um, is going to be primarily about getting Donald Trump out of office. And so it may be that within that campaign, it turns out that where the party actually is, is more in a kind of Biden or Beto space, where what they want is somebody who, like, is not moving so far to the left that like there there's like a this is like a huge war of ideas, but is somebody who seems to be like waking up every day and thinking about electability. I always think that the best analogy for this period is actually 2004. It's not a perfect analogy, and certainly it doesn't have the national security dimensions, and there are all kinds of things going on. But I think that the 2004 um, election had some of these same dynamics of a very big field of a Democratic Party that is very, very, very intent on getting the incumbent out of office. I think the incumbent is weaker than George W. Bush was on, on a lot of different levels, so I don't think the, necessarily the outcome would be the same. But, you know, there was this kind of moment there where there was a lot of excitement around Dean, and then at some point it was like, F fine, fuck it, carry. Like, that guy's a war hero, like, let's go with that. And, you know, I think that you have a couple candidates right now who are setting themselves up for that kind of for that kind of move. Biden has some policy ideas out there, but Matt, as you wrote in a really good piece today, you know, he's not staking his claim on anything really big or unusual. Beto basically didn't run a policy-heavy candidacy at all. And, you know, it may be that a lot of Democrats think that the 2020 campaign is going to be a race to the left, when actually it's going to be a race to electability. Well, I think, you know, he looked back at 2016, and it is true Bernie Sanders had like quite a run, but in the end, he didn't end up winning the nomination. So it's kind of, it is interesting to me to see the lesson be taken that like we all need to swerve super left. You know, in a way, I also see these policy proposals, you know, you mentioned kind of running, taking the lessons the last four years. In a way, I feel like they're also running against Hillary Clinton saying, you know, her ideas weren't that exciting. They weren't that big and bold in a way, you know, Bernie was out there talking about free college and Medicare for all, that they almost take the lesson from the opposite side saying, you know, we need to go beyond that. You know, it's an interesting policy context that is quite different from the policy context of Sanders and Clinton running, you know, and I think also one other thing we haven't really seen evolve quite yet is, you know, what happens when this brings in President Trump running for re-election, who is either not going to be running a policy-heavy campaign or running a, a campaign that makes very fake policy promises. You know, like he spent all of his last campaign, you know, talking about how all Americans were going to get health care and it's going to be great and he has this great plan and it's fantastic. And then we saw over four years, you know, that there 
was no plan. And, and But he still says there's a plan. You know, even we'll talk he, in his reaction to um, the Texas court ruling. He talked about, oh, you know, we have to pass a plan, get everyone with pre-existing conditions covered. The thing we know now, you know, that we suspected, couldn't say for sure it, during the last election is like there is no plan in healthcare in a lot of other areas. And that's, you know, a dynamic that candidates haven't really had to confront yet. And I think it's a hard one to confront because I think he will be out there making these big promises that a lot of voters are going to listen to. And like, it's not totally clear how Democrats manage that in a successful way. I also think, you know, I think that some of the the senators running for president, to me, they misread what was what made Bernie Sanders into a phenomenon, right? That they kind of looked at that primary and were like, aha, I guess primary voters want us to espouse more left-wing policy ideas. And so they kind of like went into their policy cookbook and they came up with some policy ideas that were more left-wing than their old policy ideas. And they're like, here we go, policy ideas, right? But I think that what was really going on, right, is that Hillary Clinton is very much a – political professional, right, in like the Max Weber sense. She was a professional leader of a political coalition. And the people who think that they are copying Bernie Sanders by getting on his Medicare for All bill and by coming out for free college and by coming out for this, that, and the other thing, like uh, Booker and especially Kamala Harris, they are actually imitating Hillary Clinton, right, in being – Liberian political professionals who have like taken stock and been like, ah, Democrats want left-wing social democracy now. So that's what I am going to go do, right? But the thing that was appealing about Bernie Sanders was not the specific content of the policy ideas, but the idea that Bernie Sanders over his decades-long political trajectory was not acting like a political professional in that sense. He was a conviction politician, right, who was like – he was saying stuff out there when he was at 40 percent closing in on the polls. People are like, oh, Bernie could have won. The exact same stuff that he would have been saying if he would gotten 3 percent in Iowa and dropped out or if he was still mayor of Burlington or if he was like my Uncle Lewis, who was Bernie's age, Jewish from New York, moved to Vermont, became a socialist but never got into politics. Like he was just like saying his, his pitch, right? And it's Beto who comes closest to that, right? Not to being – the same conviction politician that Bernie Sanders was, but to just like being the guy who rolls the dice, right? He ran a primary challenge against Sylvester Reyes in 2012 and he beat him. And then he was in the House for a few years and then he rolled the dice on this challenge to Ted Cruz, right? It wasn't like a well-calculated move. It wasn't at the time what the National Democratic Party uh, like wanted to invest in. All throughout that race, like – he would like set these fundraising quarters and like fundraising records and all these smart people would be like, really, that money would be better spent on Phil Bradison, right? Both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama endorsed his opponent in his 2012 House race, right? He is the guy who's just like doing his own thing, right? And not trying to check the boxes. And I don't – like officially approve of that mode of political conduct. And I think there's actually something admirable about the sort of duller way of doing politics. But I 
definitely think that, like, time has proven that in a presidential campaign, people prefer somebody of the – whether it's Beto O'Rourke or Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders or Donald or Trump. Or Donald Trump. Right, like a million different ways of it. Like a guy who seems like he's freelancing. He's not anybody's pawn. He's out there for himself. He is aligning with the political party because that's how the system works. But he doesn't like party politics. And the, that's the – issue that some of the other people have to deal with is the perception that they are machine politicians who are climbing the ladder rather than speaking from the heart. I think that's really insightful. Um, and, and I do think it actually, I want to use it as a bridge to talk a little about Bernie Sanders, because I think this primary is fundamentally being shaped by his curious weakness in the polls. And it's a weakness I don't really have an explanation for. I think ending the 2016 election you look at Sanders and you, you could have said a couple of things at that point about what, you know, he didn't win, but a lot of people thought he should have. And then if he had won the primary, maybe he would have won the general election. I think the criticisms of Sanders at that point were like, one, not a real Democrat. Um, and there was a lot of anger at him around that, you know, which I always thought that was somewhat overblown. He clearly just is a Democrat who runs his own branding scheme, which I get why it annoys some more traditional Democrats, but it is what it is. The other was that, well, he'd never really been attacked. So all these like high approval numbers he has, they're not real. Right. You know, when when Bernie people were like, oh, look, like he's so popular, he, you know, why didn't Democrats nominate the popular person? It's like, well, Hillary Clinton used to be popular too. And then she ran in a national uh, election and then she wasn't popular and that's what happens. And then the third was that he had no foreign policy. Right. And just nothing. I think Sanders played the period after the election extraordinarily well, actually. He has been an extremely effective coalitional politician within the Democratic Party. This is, I think, partially some credit here goes to uh, Minority Leader Schumer, who brought him into leadership. But Sanders decided to play. He decided to, like, come mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. and, like, be more or less a good soldier, but also use his position to get the most of the Democratic Party, maybe not most, but a huge portion of the Democratic Party sign up for Medicare for all. In terms of changing the party's agenda, Bernie Sanders since the election has been acting as like the party's kind of chief ideas man and like has even, as we talked about with some of the other candidates, reset the, the concept for what democratic ideas should even look like. So one thing he's done really well is play within the Democratic Party. Number two, his approval numbers have held up. He's still a very popular politician. Um, and it's true he's not been under like widespread attack, but people have heard enough about him by now that there'd be plenty of reasons to not like him. He doesn't get like great coverage on Fox News. You know, I certainly in my view, his approval numbers have been more durable than certainly that I even would have expected. So I think you got to look at him and say, OK, like this guy's popular. I mean, you compare him to, say, an Elizabeth Warren. It is not the case that just anybody in politics has high approval numbers. Her approval numbers are quite a bit lower than Bernie Sanders's are. He's built up a lot more foreign policy. He's been giving some good speeches on there. He hired good people into that. He's certainly been, I think, at the very least thinking about how to appeal to appeal to more African-American Democrats. And he has much better name recognition and relationships in that community now. We'll see if that turns into, you know, support, but, but it could. And yet, if in 2016 
Sanders did a lot better among the public than among elites. I actually almost think now we're seeing the opposite thing, where elites don't want to make the mistake of underestimating Sanders again. So it's like we're really focused on him, you know, certainly in the political press. He's not, given how he performed in 2016, polling high. He's usually polling under 15 percent, usually about half or less than half of what Joe Biden is polling at, not very far from, depending on the poll, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke. That's a lot weaker than I would have expected, given how strong his support was in 2016 and how adroitly he's played the the intervening years. And I think that that weakness of his is creating the the open space that is getting run through in the in the primer. If he were pulling at 43 percent, this would be looking very different. So I'm curious if either of you have a theory for why Sanders is routinely polling at 13 or 14 rather than 30 or 35. I mean, this is not a very well thought through theory. It's one kind of listening to you and Matt uh, over the last few minutes. But, you know, one thought is, you know, as Matt was mentioning, one of the things people really liked about him was this like freewheeling, you know, he's just this guy from Vermont supporting the things he supports. And I think, you know, because of the kind of coalitional stuff he's doing within the Democratic Party, on the one hand, I think you're right, Ezra, he is changing what policy looks like. He is changing kind of where the baseline is for what it means to be a Democrat and pulling that to the left. On the other hand, you know, he kind of looks a bit more like another Democrat in the Senate. You know, he's in leadership. He is, you know, both working on Medicare for All, but also working to defend the Affordable Care Act, that he looks a little bit less like a guy who is, you know, just coming in and doing the things he thinks are right and more like an establishment Democrat who is, part of the system. I don't know. I don't have like a strong attachment to this theory, but that could be one factor where it doesn't really have, you know, running a second time as Bernie Sanders or even running a second time as Donald Trump doesn't really have the sense of like this new fresh phrase disruptor in the way it does the first time, you know, both of them were running. The way I think of this paradox, right, like Bernie Sanders has done a lot to assuage my personal doubts about him as a candidate from before. And, and, you know, not to just redo Ezra's thing, but in particular, I thought that Bernie Sanders' high poll numbers were a kind of bubble from the campaign dynamics that like just a huge swath of people who didn't like Hillary Clinton, some of them Republicans and conservatives and stuff, had just kind of decided, okay, I'm going to say that I like Bernie Sanders. And I thought that it would definitely collapse when he you know, if he was the nominee. And I think that has really been debunked. Like, he has become a partisan figure who Republicans and conservatives attack and complain about. And his numbers hold up well. Like, he is just popular and well-liked. And I think that he is viewed as a person who has integrity, like, more so than the average politician. And I think that makes a pretty good electability case for him, right? That this is somebody who, in a contest with Donald Trump, will keep a focus on economic policy issues, will be regarded as personally honest, and will be really hard for Republicans to sort of what about their way past all the million Trump scandals. He's also, as you said, like he's shown like he can staff up on foreign policy, he can address those areas. He's actually been a very influential leader on the development of of the Yemen issue in Congress. And then that's the other thing. He's shown that like it is true that like the main ideas he puts out there are not really plausible or realistic, but that he also has this other side to him where, like, he's a member of the U.S. Senate who does things and gets bills passed. So it's like he understands, right? Like, it's 
you would not want a president who's delusional. But I think it's fine to have a president who's aspirational, right? And, like, he knows what he's doing. So I, I'm like a Bernie bro now. And it's weird to me that he's, like, way worse in the polls than a shakier Bernie looked to be in, in 2016. That said, when CNN did its national Democratic poll, it also showed Bernie – running well behind Joe Biden, who himself was not doing that great. But if you dig into the internals, you just ask the approval ratings of the candidates, it's like Bernie is well thought of, right? There's like a huge segment of Democrats who have heard of Bernie Sanders, who say they have a favorable view of Bernie Sanders, and who are not picking him as their first choice for president. To me, that just speaks to the sense that like – Bernie and Biden are both out there as these like old white guys in a party that is like really not been giving – you know, women did really, really well in 2018 contested primary elections. And the women candidates who people get excited about and who now seem to be down in the polls are not nearly as well known. So I think there's sort of doubts there. But I wouldn't – I wouldn't sell on Bernie's odds right now just because even though his polls are not great, his approval numbers are actually quite high and he sort of has a chance to get up there on the stage and outcompete these other people. Of course, they also have the ability to outcompete them. I mean, I think to me the I don't want to say she's a sleeper because everybody in politics like talks about Kamala Harris all the time, but it's like if Kamala Harris can get out there and deliver a speech and everyone's like, wow, that was an amazing speech or do a debate with 50 million people on the stage and do a really good job and people are like, wow, she kicked ass, right? The fundamentals behind her are very, very strong. I just don't think she's quite yet ever done that like wow thing. She becomes a candidate who at the moment like professionals are like, oh, this is good. She's had a good career. She's very smart. A lot of people like her. Um, but there's a big just performance aspect to presidential politics. And uh, Amy Klobuchar is like the buzzy candidate at the moment because uh, she's also just super duper popular in Minnesota. But like it's the same thing. Like have we ever heard like the amazing Amy Klobuchar speech? And that's not to say she can't give one. It's just like she would have to do it. All right. Should we talk about some Obamacare lawsuits? Ooh, yeah. Let's take a break. Talk about the courts. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. 
Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E.com, wise.com. Okay, so Friday night, I'm I'm sitting at home, I'm recovering from foot surgery, and I see that there is some big breaking Obamacare news that a district court in Texas um, released this ruling around 8 o'clock on Friday night, finding the entirety of Obamacare unconstitutional. Um, this is a lawsuit that we actually did an entire episode about um, a few months ago that we'll put in show notes. It's the one that was brought by about 20 Republican attorneys general charging that because the individual mandate penalty is no longer in place as a result of the tax reform bill, the individual mandate is unconstitutional. And if the mandate is unconstitutional, then the rest of the law has to fall with it. I think the thing that surprised me about this court ruling wasn't that it went against the Affordable Care Act. Um, This judge, Reed O'Connor, who's a George W. Bush appointee, is known for some pretty controversial ruling. He seems to kind of be the district judge you go to if you want to strike down some kind of Obama-era law or some kind of social program. So I was expecting him to rule against the Affordable Care Act, but I wasn't expecting him to go as far as the attorneys general asked him to. So they said in their arguments that if the individual mandate falls, then all of Obamacare, you know, not just the reforms to the insurance market, which the mandate is somewhat integral to, but also the Medicaid expansion, also reforms to how Medicare pays for health care, also requirements that um, restaurants put calorie labels on their menus. Um, they argued that everything has to go away. You know, even the Trump administration wasn't willing to go this far. They aren't defending the law, but they, you know, offered up the position in a court brief that only, you know, the insurance market reforms, the ban on pre-existing conditions, the requirement to accept everybody, those should fall if the individual mandate falls. But the rest of the law, Medicaid expansion, Medicare reforms, that should all stay in place. And this was a pretty sweeping ruling, ruling the entirety of the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Um, you know, I, I think the big the biggest things to know right now are, first, this does not affect the Affordable Care Act. It is still standing law. One judge in Texas cannot take down a major public policy program. And then I think the debate that's kind of interesting to me right now is what happens next. I, the smartest legal people I talk to, you know, don't don't see this as a serious argument. We talked about this in the last weeds. I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit here. But the legal arguments that are being offered are, are very, very weak. And I think Ezra actually had a nice write-up of kind of the judge's finding that maybe he'll talk about a little bit here. You know, that being said, I am still a little wary of writing off the challenge completely just after seeing other challenges written off in a similar way. 
I'm not convinced this one is different enough where we can just wave our hands and say it's frivolous and, you know, stop looking at it. But I think the biggest debate I see going on right now is, well, you know, where where does this go in its next steps? Yeah. So uh, let, let's talk for a minute, though, about the ruling, because what happened in between us talking about this last time and this time is we actually have the ruling. And so I just want to lay out its logic. Um, and its logic is like banana pants, but but I think it's just important to do. So you have the individual mandate, um, and the individual mandate is, um, according to Democrats, according to everybody, kind of essential to Obamacare. And essential is being used in a weird way here. It doesn't just mean like something you really want in the law. It's used to say something like without it, the law could not function. That goes to the Supreme Court. Uh, John Roberts says the individual mandate is unconstitutional as a regulation under the Commerce Clause, but it is constitutional as a tax. And that's where that's where everything sits for a while. Then in 2017, Republicans uh, do not repeal Obamacare, but in their tax cut bill, they zero out the individual mandate as a tax. So now it's a tax, but it doesn't tax you anything. So these Republican attorneys general look at this and say, aha, well, if it doesn't tax you anything, then it's not a tax. And then if what you're saying then is the individual mandate is really just like this weird regulation, even though it's not working, then it's unconstitutional. And if it's unconstitutional because it's essential, then you can't just take it out of the bill. You have to find the entire bill unconstitutional. And this doesn't make any sense on a number of levels, but one of the obvious levels is that Congress clearly intended to do what it did because Congress did what it did. Congress repealed the tax in the individual mandate without repealing the rest of Obamacare. Well, but there was no real debate in Congress. They had no opportunity to consider repealing the whole rest of the law. <laughs> right. right. This is what Reed O'Connor, Judge Reed O'Connor says. He says, oh, well, I find that they had no intention about the rest of the bill because they were acting through budget reconciliation. But insofar as they did have an intention, the intention is to do what they did, which is to repeal the tax part but leave the unconstitutional regulation, thus leaving this like unconstitutional hole that, that, that brings the whole thing down. This is just not how you do this. Like, this is like, if this sounds crazy, if you're listening to me, like, none of that makes any sense. The reason is none of it makes any sense. John Cohen had a good piece in the Huffington Post showing that, like, a bunch of the conservative legal folks who were, like, all about these other challenges are like, this is ridiculous. So it's ridiculous, but it's here. Like, this is where we are. And, like, now, like, further courts are going to have to look at it or, or, or something. But just, like... The thing I just want to say about this is that the level of legal like shenanigans that Republicans are repeatedly convincing themselves to buy into and then getting like some random judge somewhere to buy into is like it's damaging. It's like bad for the entire system. Like this is a ridiculous way to treat the law and the legal system. And like you're supposed to have like some minimum viable level of like legal theory to get 20 or whatever it is attorney general attorneys general to sign on. And like they're just signing on to anything these days. It's just it's honestly like it's just complete Calvin ball in a way that is certainly reduced my respect for the the legal system. But I think it's just creating an obvious like everybody looks at this and is like, oh, yeah, OK, we just have these partisan legal attacks going on all the time. And long run, it just makes it very easy to just like wave away anything but the ultimate expression of Supreme Court power. Well, OK, so some three additional points here. One is that we are seeing some of the poison fruit here of John Roberts being too cute in his additional ruling, right? Like the original conservative legal theory about this makes no sense. It was made up nonsense, like the entirety of conservative commerce clause jurisprudence, right? They were just like, oh, here's this thing that is clearly a commercial regulation, but we're going to pretend it's unconstitutional for no reason. And John Roberts, instead of saying, fuck you, that's dumb, was like, oh, you guys are 
right. But here's this other reason why you don't get the outcome you want. And, you know, everybody wrote their articles about, oh, a great statesman, the chief justice, blah, blah, blah. But like now he's sort of getting what he deserves for this, right? Which is like given his imprimatur to the loopy legal theory that Congress's right to regulate interstate commerce is not a right to regulate interstate commerce if some Republicans don't like the way they're doing it. It's like you can make anything up on that basis and that's like – that's the whole problem with Federalist Society economic jurisprudence and now they're tossing it back at them. The other thing is if Congress – I shouldn't say Congress. If Republicans in Congress didn't suck, you could just fix this in two seconds, right? You would put a bill on the floor and it says the individual mandate is repealed. Boom, Okay. Then none of the rest of it goes up in a poof of smoke because this whole loopy issue about the linkages and the metaphysics whereby Medicaid expansion is unconstitutional because you can't have a $0 tax would just go away, right? But it's not happening because Republicans in Congress actually want (laughs) the Affordable Care Act to be repealed root and branch. So they are happy with this outcome. So they're not doing the fix even though the fix is easy. But then there's the third thing which is like – it would be one thing for constitutional law to just be the raw exercise of partisan politics. But the way Republicans practice constitutional law is the raw exercise of partisan politics plus lying, right? So like Republicans don't want to put a bill on the floor that repeals Medicaid expansion because it would be unpopular to kick all those people off their health insurance. So instead what they do is they vote to confirm conservative judges while all saying, oh, no, no, we love Medicaid. We love pre-existing conditions. We want everybody to have health care. And then they have this network of conservative lawyers, right, who – because it's not – you can say, oh, it's one judge. It's all of the attorneys general, right? It is every single Republican state legislator in Wisconsin backed a lame duck bill to ex post take away the power of the newly elected attorneys, right? This is a uniform consensus view inside the Republican Party is that this judge's ruling is the outcome that they want, but they don't want to take political responsibility for it. So they have this like coordinated way to put judges on the bench who advance an extreme libertarian economic policy agenda that they do not want to defend before the voters. And then they just kind of say whatever on election day. Like Josh Hawley, who was behind this lawsuit, he didn't need to join this lawsuit. Like he could have secretly wanted the lawsuit to prevail. It would not in any way have hindered the lawsuit for him to not sign on. But he signed on and then spent the whole campaign lying about his position. And then he won because – Whatever. Conservative media is horrible. And like that's what they're doing here, right? And it's a very frightening vision of how American politics might work in which campaigns might be just circuses that are debated entirely on the basis of national anthem protests. And then policy is made by installing Federalist Society judges who go to secret conferences at the Heritage Foundation where they decide what they're going to do and that's how everything happens and they don't like actually explicate what they're doing. Like nothing Donald Trump has said about this ruling is like this ruling is good because the policy outcome that it will lead to in which people don't have health insurance is the one that I favor, right? His administration like works tirelessly toward this policy outcome but they won't say that it's the policy outcome that they're working toward and that to me – It's very frustrating. I'm very frustrated. 
I mean, I think one of the things that was most interesting to me this weekend on the Republican side is just seeing the in, the very telling silence around this ruling. So you saw, you know, Friday night, all these Democratic legislators on social media through the weekend, you know, talking about this is a disaster, this is terrible. You didn't really see the same thing from um, Republican legislators. You didn't see until they were on the Sunday shows being pressed on it by the hosts, them coming out and celebrating this ruling. I, I place a lot of faith in a lot of the legal experts I talk to about this who do not expect, you know, this to ultimately be a successful lawsuit. They will note that the five justices who were sitting in the Supreme Court who upheld Obamacare are still sitting in their seats. You know, I am pretty convinced, you know, I, I wouldn't write it off entirely, but I'm pretty convinced by the arguments that, you know, this might not even make it to the Supreme Court. But it would be such a train wreck for Republicans. And, and I mean, it'd be a train wreck for Americans who rely on the Affordable Care Act. It'd be a train wreck for Republicans if they actually had to deal with the consequences of this lawsuit being successful. Um, you know, we, we saw in 2017 that they don't have a clear vision of how to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And I don't think throwing a Democrat-controlled house in the mix suddenly makes that something that they gain clarity on. So they are in, you know, an odd place around this at, at this point. And I don't, I mean, the Josh Hawley example just really, really frustrates me because it's something where his policy position was so clear from the actions he was taking. Like he was signing onto a lawsuit to repeal pre-existing conditions. And he was running these ads saying he supports pre-existing conditions and he won his race. So, you know, thinking back to our previous conversation about what 2020 looks like, it's a really demoralizing lesson in American politics to me that he was able to straight up lie about how he feels about pre-existing conditions and he won his election. So, but looking forward to 2019, we can maybe talk about some. So, you, so Sarah, before we go yeah, on yeah. this, um, so what happens next? So this judge ruled this way, like what, what is the next legal step for, for this challenge? So the next legal step is being is the ruling being appealed up to the Fifth Circuit. And this is being done since the Trump administration is not defending the law. It's a group of Democratic attorney generals um, led by the attorney general of California who are the ones who have um, vowed already to file an appeal. So the next step is this being appealed to the Fifth Circuit. There are some technical legal things that the judge is doing that seem to slow this process. If you want to understand those better, I highly recommend the Twitter feed of um, Nick Bagley, who's a healthcare professor at University of Michigan, who has been writing extensively about those things. So it seems like the appeal might not go super quickly. But the next step is an appeal with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is generally a relatively conservative circuit, but, um, you know, one where folks eyeing the decision, you know, generally expect it to be reversed, but wouldn't um, totally rule out the possibility of it being affirmed. And then from the Fifth Circuit, it could possibly go up to the Supreme Court. Fun. 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 Okay. With that, we're going to call it a call it a day here. Thanks to all of you out there for, for listening. Thanks to uh, Republican judicial activists for keeping us on the Obamacare beat. Every time I think we're out, they pull me back Thanks, in. guys. It's amazing. Um, thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner, and the weeds will return on Friday. Hey. 
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.